The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Imagine you had spent a good chunk of your 20s and 30s as a journalist chasing the biggest stories on the planet. Not just any stories, but the ones where good and evil come face to face. Totalitarian rule versus freedom-loving citizens. Equal opportunity versus state-sanctioned apartheid. And the amazing thing is good seemed to triumph. There was this whole sort of extraordinary sort of teleology of hope, really. You've got to think that there was the fall of the Berlin Wall Mm -hmm. in 1989, the collapse of the Soviet Union in late 91. Then 1994, you had the end of apartheid. These astonishing things that were just happening in the world. You know, there were some awful things happening, including appallingly the Rwandan genocide, which I did end up covering. But fundamentally, there was a sense that the world was moving in in a hopeful direction. That's Alec Russell. He's editor of FT Weekend. As in all of FT Weekend. The magazine, Life and Arts, How to Spend It, and this podcast. Alec spent the beginning of his career writing about the collapse of communism. He showed up in Romania in 1990, just days after the country's communist dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu, was executed. And he watched Romania start to rebuild itself as a new, free country. About three years after that, he went to South Africa. Recently, Alex has been thinking a lot about Romania and its post-communist neighbors. There's all of the news coming out of Ukraine, of course. But also, he read this book. It's called Free by Leia Ipi. It's a memoir about growing up in Albania, and it's made him rethink this whole narrative he had built around his time in Eastern Europe. It just reminded me, I think, of the hubris of the West in the early 90s. And I feel complicit in that, actually, because I Mm. turned up in Eastern Europe as a wannabe journalist in 1990, and communism had just fallen, and the sort of societies they left were on their knees. And uh, it seemed so clear-cut. Free market capitalism had won, and... Uh, There was only one way forward, and all the people pouring into the region were just saying, you've got to privatize everything now, you've got to do this, that, and the other. There's only one way to go. And actually, I think we were just all a bit too certain of the way forward. We in the West and the big Western financial institutions and the World Bank and so on were so sure that we knew the right policies that I think we just poured this medicine down people's throats without thinking, well, actually, maybe we should go a little bit gently. This week, Alec is on the podcast to explore his memories of this period of history. And then he brings us to Albania for lunch with Leia Ipi. He liked the book so much, he flew to her hometown to meet her. Then we're going to look to the future. Most cultures use science fiction to explore what may be coming. But the way each culture uses it says a lot about who they are. Our European tech reporter, Madhumita Murja, gives us a world tour. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. You might remember Alec Russell talking about EP's book in our Best Books episode back in December. He called it haunting and brilliant. He's not the only one praising it. It was named one of the best books of 2021 by The Guardian, The New Yorker, and The Sunday Times, as well as the FT. So we had him on to hear why he decided he really just needed to meet with EP. Alec, 
Welcome to FD Weekend Podcast. It's such a delight, such an honor to have you on. Uh, well, it's, it's wonderful to be on the podcast, Lila. So to get the basics, who is Leah E.P. and what exactly is her book about? So Leah E.P. is an academic and an author. She's Albanian and she grew up in Albania in the 80s when Albania was run by an appalling totalitarian communist regime. It was the most strict regime in Eastern Europe. And that's saying something mm. given some of the others. And she came of age uh, in the 90s when Albania became free and then lurched into a sort of semi-gangsterish version of capitalism. She then lived her life in the West as an academic. And the really interesting thing is that having grown up in almost a sort of parody of a Marxist dictatorship, she's ended up lecturing in Marxism studies, and <laughs> she is a very, very fervent critic of capitalism. Right. And so what are the political ideas in her book? Well, to be clear, it's a stunning memoir of communism. That That's its greatest strength of all. Mm. It looks back at that system that dominated half of Europe for decades with a critical eye, because, look, both her grandfathers were political prisoners for years. The country she grew up in was impoverished, etc., etc. But there is another, quite right, there's another strand to the book, which is almost surprisingly, given her upbringing, she sort of is basically arguing in the second half of the book that it was a bit of a false god that they'd all been dreaming of this new liberal world. And then they discovered that it just wasn't the promised land. So at the heart of her argument is this fundamental idea, how do you become truly free? And she says, yeah, communism doesn't lead you to total freedom, but nor does capitalism either. If you don't know the Cold War history of Albania, here's a brief overview. At the end of World War II, Albania became part of the Soviet-controlled Eastern Bloc. Its leader was a man named Enver Hoxha. Enver Hoxha in what you're hearing now is a song called Long Live Enver Hoxha, written sometime during his 44-year rule. As Alec mentioned, Hoxha was an extreme guy. He aligned himself with Joseph Stalin, the Soviet Union's most brutal dictator. But he thought his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, was too moderate. So then he aligned himself with China. He liked Mao and the kind of Maoism. Then Mao died and China started to liberalize. And he thought, ha, this, you know, these, these people are kind of milksops. So he gave up on China. And essentially, it was just North Korea left. By the end of his rule in the mid-1980s, Albania was known as the North Korea of Europe. As many as 25,000 political prisoners may have been killed. Tens of thousands were imprisoned, including members of Leia Ipi's family. She recalls how so often in conversations with her parents and aunts and uncles, they'd be talking about people doing degrees at universities. And she remember being quite struck as a child how so many people seem to be doing these degrees at different universities. And then the degrees would be extended and they'd do a follow-up degree and then a different degree. And she had no idea it was a code. It was their code for prison camp and prison mm. sentences. And some of the code meant that you'd been executed. And some of the code meant that your prison sentence had been extended. Like other communist regimes, Hoxha's confiscated private property, including an apartment that belonged to Epi's grandmother. People were basically powerless. 
But at the same time, E.P. points out that there was a real decency in the way people treated each other in the face of these hardships. That people who trusted each other could trust each other completely, even when they were dodging party informants. You know, that's something I've heard before from people who've lived through communist rule. I'm Armenian, and when visiting Armenia, that was a nuance in conversations about their history that really surprised me. Hearing her talk about her memories and and the ideas in the book, it reminded me a little of Armenians' memories of communist rule, that a lot was worse, but there was still joy, and they talk about it sort of like... There were bad parts and there were good parts. (laughs) And the years that followed were also very, very bad. I think that's really, really interesting. And that's what Leia brings across both in her book and also when you talk to her, that it is okay to reflect on the communist years and recall that there were some good parts because that's not saying it was a good system and it's not saying... Ah, the, the the prison camps and all that were kind of like just one thing. Of course, the most important thing about what happened was that these were sort of awful totalitarian regimes. But within them, all sorts of people uh, found ways of living their lives and were forced to sort of fall back on their humanity uh, in a way that maybe we just were just not forced to in our more individualistic and free existences in the West. And then, just like that, when E.P. was 10, communism was over in Europe in a matter of months. 1989 came, the Berlin Wall fell, and uh, with breakneck speed, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Bulgaria eventually, and then Romania after the revolution, all ended the communist regimes in just two months. Albania, though, took a year. It fell at the end of 1990. Alec actually went there in early 1992. He remembers how empty the streets were. There wasn't a single car on his four-hour drive to Tirana, the capital. Communist rule left Eastern Europe in absolute poverty. Back at his home base in Romania, things were dire too. Supermarket shelves were empty. Relatives brought in food from rural farms so that people living in cities wouldn't starve. Alec remembers living off chocolate bars and potato chips. And yet, he has bright memories of that time. There was hope. There was a sense of possibility. It was a time of sort of dreams, a time when people were talking about the sort of questions that in the US and and in the UK, where I am now, we we seldom really probe sort of fundamental issues, sort of what is freedom, what is liberty, what is license. Do you remember seeing anything in particular that made you feel like you were seeing freedom start to arrive or seeing it where you hadn't seen it before? Goodness, yes, just so many memories. I remember going to the first free Easter services in in Romania in a Mm. big church in Bucharest, and hundreds and hundreds of people were crying. They felt that this Mm. was their first true, true Easter service. I remember covering the first democratic election. It was flawed. There was a certain amount of intimidation, but it was still fundamentally a proper election. E.P. remembers those hopeful scenes too. But what's also vivid in her mind is the part that came next. By 1997, a pyramid scheme economy led to her country's collapse into violence. As many as one-third of Albanians had invested in these empty government-backed schemes. So whatever they had managed to save since the transition, they suddenly lost. The people started protesting, leaders fled, and the country quickly devolved into civil war. 
And that's just Albania. Other countries like Romania, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Russia, they went through economic collapse too, some more than once. Former Yugoslav countries like Bosnia, Serbia, and Kosovo descended into war, and eventually in Bosnia-Herzegovina into ethnic cleansing. And of course, this history, history with a capital H, has affected millions of real lives across Eastern Europe. For example, EP remembers losing her mother and brother. They accidentally got evacuated to Italy during the violence. And her mother and brother sort of get caught up in this crowd and they end up on the boat. And Leah's at home with her father and her grandmother. She's saying, where's mommy? Where's my mum? Mm. And they don't know where she is. And then her mum rings up for it. She's saying, I'm really sorry. We had to get on the boat and we knew we weren't there. And I mean, it's just almost heartrending, except it's, yeah. it's got a happy ending because uh, uh, her mother came back. And actually, I met her mother later that day. When Alex says that day, he's talking about an afternoon in January when he finally spoke with EP in person. They met in her hometown of Durash. The day was so warm, it felt like early summer. And they talked for more than four hours. All right. We've got to start with the book. Very good. <laughs> Let's we, go. <laughs> we have to start with the book. As in, uh, how long? How long have you been thinking about this? I mean, was was this was this something? Alec and EP are talking here over Albanian wine and fresh fish like salmon, squid, red snapper on the shores of the Adriatic. EP now lives in England and teaches political theory at the London School of Economics. But Alec wanted to meet her where it all began. This restaurant is just steps from the pier where her mother was rescued by the Italian peacekeepers. I've had this obsession with freedom throughout my life. And at one point, I just asked myself, why am I so obsessed with freedom? You you, you try. It's great. Fantastic. See, actually, with both freedom and democracy and the connection between the two, so how does democracy realize freedom? What happens in a democracy? And then at some point, it dawned on me that... Freedom and democracy were the slogans of 1990. Serious? Freedom. Yes, exactly. And democracy. And so... Alec is interviewing EP for lunch with the FT. It's a weekly feature in FT Weekend where an FT journalist takes someone of note to lunch, pays the bill, and writes about it. I've put his piece in the show notes. They spend some time talking about Albania today. It's made a lot of progress in the last 10 years under the leadership of an artist prime minister named Eddie Rama. But it continues to be one of the poorest countries in Europe. EP isn't interested in comparing Albania to the rest of Europe, though. She wants to talk about capitalism and that it might not be providing a good life for ordinary Albanians or for ordinary people in other countries. You take a system at face value and we'll see, you see what kind of commitments it has and what kind of ideals it tries to realize. And then you look at what, what it does for ordinary people and for everyone, basically. And then you ask yourself, is the system representing everybody or not? And then the more I thought about examples, the more they began to come back from Albania or from my life mm. in terms of betrayals of freedom in terms of slogans, in terms of ideologies of how people had been kind of promising these things, but they weren't actually really realized. And so for me, throughout my work, it was always about the kind of remainders and how, you know, you have these ideals and then actually they fail to deliver for people and there's people are still unfree or there's still oppression, there's still marginalization and so on. Here is the ultimate question of EB's book. Were the sacrifices that she and other Eastern Europeans made the way towards freedom? Or were they a mandatory entry fee for a new system that was also not free? And you should know that this question sounds almost sacrilegious to a lot of Albanians. 
The idea that EP might be equating Hoxha's bloody dictatorship with the shortcomings of free market capitalism, it's insulting. Alec bristled at that too. So he pressed her to explain the few parts in her book that felt like they were equating then and now. There's one sentence when you come closest to, to suggesting, uh, at the very least, that they were both as good, as bad as each other. Um, I just no, I don't you... say that. I know no, what no, you no, mean. no, 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 so, no, no, no. There are two. I know which ones you mean. I can pick it up immediately. <laughs> because oh, I've thought a lot, God, a lot about those sentences. Write it down? Oh, hang on, hang on, here we go, here we go. Okay, page 310. My world is as far, is that the one? Exactly, my, my world is as far, far away from freedom, freedom as, as the, the one, one that my parents, parents tried exactly. to escape. Exactly, okay. so, but they're not, so this is very important, right? It's not about these worlds vis-a-vis each other, it's about these worlds vis-a-vis freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But did one of them get closer to freedom? I don't think it did, no. So that, I guess, is, that is where Certainly old Cold War warriors would say, hang on a moment, you're nuts. But you have to think about the history of the world. I mean, what are the conditions under which the wealth and the development of these societies emerged? And so if you think of them in total, in terms of what imperialism and what the kind of colonial legacy has done to build these freedoms, to me it seems very obvious that that there is price for the freedom of some people, which is the unfreedom of other people in other parts of the world. And these developments are not unconnected. In EP's view, you can look at one particular country, say the UK, and it can look pretty free. By that, she means not just that there are abstract freedoms, but that people have choice to take a job they don't want or not, to go to university or not. But many people in capitalist countries don't have this choice. They can't afford to turn down a job or they can't afford to go to the school they want. And if they do, if they live in a country like the UK, that's likely the result of a colonial history and also a result of other privileges that come with living in the global north. Alec, were there any sort of very radical ideas that lay ahead that you really disagreed with? Uh, yes, <laughs> there were. <laughs> Her fundamental point about freedom and uh, the idea that the sort of free market capitalist system has a long, long way to go to reach sort of true freedom for its adherents is all very well. But when set against awfulness and restriction of communism, I think she could have drawn a bit more of a line between them. So there was Mm -hmm. one moment when uh, she starts talking about how she moved to the West in the late 90s and didn't see the big dream being realized. We left Albania and we were in Albania with this big idea that this world was going to deliver. And then you realize that it doesn't actually work like that. And it did deliver. Kind of I, I, I came in and said, well, I mean, maybe, but it, it was a lot better than communism. She said, well, it delivered on first generation freedoms. Well, I mean, it delivered on the kind of first generation freedoms, yeah. I suppose. So obviously there was freedom of thought now and there's freedom of expression and there's freedom of association. And so Which are big. So to, to an extreme, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> too big, almost yeah. too big, right? Well, yeah. I mean, they are quite big freedoms, those. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. are. But rather unfortunately, just as we were getting to grips with that, and she did say, to be fair, she said, well, well yes, they are extremely big. Then actually one of the waiters arrived and interrupted our train of thought. Um, <laughs> with like a I, big but fish. I, but, I, but I think there is the odd moment when it might have been helpful for her in the book to just come down crisply and say, to be clear, guys, I do get it that 
the system was totally abhorrent in the past. But then again, as she says, if you read the book, uh, you will understand she's not brushing aside what it was like to live in the old era. Not, not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the comparison that gets her in trouble. Evie's cr- critical of the reformers and the NGOs that came in around that time and acted like they knew it was best for Albania. And she doesn't point to journalists in this accusation, but it sounds like you feel... <laughs> how, how did it feel to you to talk about that? Uh, well, no, I, I do. I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of, of all journalists, but I do think that we were very, very critical of the reformist communists that took over and took a very black and white view Communist Party, bad, uh, sort of new liberal characters, good. And actually, I think I'd have been more sympathetic to the predicament of the reformist communists if I'd been covering them. I mean, it's a ludicrous counterfactual, but if I'd been covering them now with the experience I've had now, I think I'd have thought, well, maybe these societies, they need some people who've been part of the past Can you tell me what are the most, to you, important questions that she's posed in this book? Well, the single most important question is to keep thinking about the status quo. And I suppose it's particularly relevant now as we emerge, we hope, from this pretty awful two years. Uh, Surely this is a good time to reassess all sorts of things. And what I found rather refreshing about her book was that she just wanted to go back to some fairly fundamental points and keep posing them. Alec, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Uh, Lila, absolute treat to be on your podcast. Madumita Mergia was never really into science fiction as a kid. She's the FT's European technology correspondent, so you'd think she might have been, but she only came to it recently. I didn't actually grow up in the so-called West. You know, I grew up in India. And so things like, you know, the Terminator and Space Odyssey and stuff, they weren't as like, they didn't loom as large in like the public cultural consciousness for me. For her job, Madu talks with people about AI a lot. And she says she's noticed a common theme. The single thing that when people are concerned about sort of AI or robots taking over humanity, you know, they cite the Terminator or they cite Minority Report, even though that wasn't even <laughs> AI. But, you know, that, you right. know, that's the fear that people are going to see into the future and predict the future and change it. It turns out Americans and Brits have a very suspicious, slightly dystopian outlook on technology. You can see it in pop culture. Movies about killer robots are guaranteed to be box office gold here. That doesn't really happen unless your society's anxious about the future. But that skepticism of technology, that's not the case everywhere. In Japan, two of the most popular TV manga, or cartoon classics for kids, are both about robots who do good. The kind of two most loved manga characters, um, which have kind of become a part of the cultural history there, are Astro Boy and Doraemon. Astro Boy and Doraemon have been around since the 60s. And they were designed as really positive, non-threatening visions of the future. Astro Boy is a little android kid who coexists happily among humans. Sometimes they call on him to save their lives. Oh, 
You're hearing Astro Boy flying into a burning skyscraper, rescuing babies, and then returning them to their mothers on the streets below. The other show, Doraemon, is about a cute little blue cat from the 22nd century that goes back in time to help a boy. So you can't really get much more <laughs> unthreatening. Cuter than that, right? Yeah, and, 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 you know, over time, that's kind of influenced how people in Japan, you know, see AI. They see it as something that can help, um, something that can assist them with the kind of modern day problems that they have, including, you know, an aging population. So there's a lot of development of care robots or, mm. um, you know, assistants or, or, you know, robots that can kind of befriend people who are frail or lonely or... Um, and, you know, it's it's just a very different view to kind of here where we, we think about, like, how do we make sure the AI doesn't take over humanity and how, how can we make sure there's a kill switch so we can turn them off? Madhu says there's this sort of endless loop with sci-fi, like a feedback loop. On one side, sci-fi can inspire technology. Like, for example, the inventor of the first personal cell phone said that Captain Kirk's communicator device on Star Trek was his inspiration. Even the word metaverse comes from this beloved sci-fi novel from 1992 called Snow Crash. It's by Neil Stevenson. But sci-fi also shapes how we feel about technology. In that novel, Snow Crash, the metaverse was a warning signal. In The Terminator and in Black Mirror, they're wrestling with the worst-case implications of the exact technologies that they may be inspiring some developer in Silicon Valley to build. Madhu wrote about this loop and about how different cultures use science fiction in a recent piece for FT Weekend called Into the Metaverse. I've put it in the show notes. In China, it's different still. Sci-fi is used deliberately to build enthusiasm for tech. Madhu spoke with Chinese writer Chen Chufan. He writes these like really um, sort of fascinating short stories. They're just like really strange and just so so different in terms of all the cultural touch points from all the things I'm used to reading, but at the same time reflective of the reality of what's going on there. Chu Fan doesn't just speculate about what our world will look like. He also works with the Chinese government and tech companies there to make tech look cool. They want to use it to kind of promote and popularize tech um, amongst young people and want it to be attractive for them um, so that they'll start doing those jobs because they really want to kind of kickstart this new sort of high-tech economy. So what's an example of that? So for example, he went and spent time with the Chinese Space Agency, so the National Space Agency, mm. and was kind of embedded there for a few weeks, he said. But basically, they wanted to send up these like literary time capsules of science fiction of current day and then bring it back to Earth in a few years time to see how things have changed. Chen kind of learned loads about kind of how astronauts work and what it means to kind of design space flight and rockets and brought that into his story. So it was kind of like a two-way conversation. This actually isn't a new idea. It was borrowed from the Soviet Union. They did something similar during the space race in the 50s, around when they launched Sputnik. They used science fiction to build public enthusiasm for science and technology. Another country that's embracing sci-fi right now is India. Our colleague Nilanjana Roy wrote a piece recently about how science fiction and fantasy are now extremely popular in contemporary Indian literature. But they're not using our monsters and aliens. They're using theirs, like Trails, a tree spirit, or Jinns, a supernatural spirit. Madhu grew up in India, and I was curious to hear what she thought. 
funnily enough, I haven't actually read any Indian sci-fi in them, but I have read, you know, and kind of been exposed to loads of that sort of mysticism and, as you said, kind of jinns and magic. And so it totally makes sense for me that, like, Indian cultural mores around fantasy and, like, magical realism would, would dovetail with sci-fi. Madhu did read one short story by an Indian writer that she can't get out of her head. It's called Your Cup Runneth Over by Lavanya Lakshminarayan. It's a Black Mirror-like scenario in which you're rated based on all the different technologies that surveil you. But what was most compelling to Madhu is that it was set in Bangalore. I loved how it was like, you know, in the Indian context. So it felt really familiar. For me, it felt like so refreshing um, because so much of even the reporting around AI um, and futuristic technology is really Western because this is where loads of the development is happening. But I think, you know, reading Stanley or Chen's work, you know, work from China and reading Lavanya's short story based in Bangalore in India, it kind of makes you realize how the technology is just so you know, globalized now, but it's not the same everywhere. And we forget that when we're looking at it from our perspective here in, you know, London and New York. I really um, love this idea of using fiction to explore what a future will look like or make that future less abstract. And I just love that last line in your piece where you said, the tech luminaries imitating art to build real life are forgetting one important thing. The point of sci-fi, like all fiction, is not to predict the future, but to teach us what it really means to be human in a changing world. And that's a lesson today's innovators are yet to learn. And I'm curious what you mean by that. What should we be using this to think about? I think the thing that struck me is that a lot of technologists and, and business leaders, they cite sci-fi. So they cite Snow Crash, for example. You know, they cite that as like their inspirations, <laughs> right? And then they, they build these worlds. But all of the people that I've read about and, and spoken to, they said, you know, we never intended this to be like uh, an illustration of what the future should look like. <laughs> um, and, you know, in many cases, it was pretty, it was a warning, right. you know, Th that was the fear that, you know, as the world changes and evolves, what it means to be human changes. And we start to question how we cope with that. And that's how I've kind of always seen fiction. And that's how, you know, science fiction writers, that's why they build these worlds because they're writing for humans, right? Yeah. Thank you so much. This was fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you're looking to get into sci-fi yourself, Madhu recommends the book Exhalation by Ted Chiang. She's been buying it for everyone as a gift and I've actually bought it for myself. So let me know if you read it. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week is exciting. We're going to Yorkshire, England with the writer Imogen West Knights to try to solve a mystery, an audio mystery. There's this hum up there, this stressful sound that's been bothering residents, and it's unclear what it is or if it's real. Keep in touch. It is always such a pleasure to hear from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com or on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me mostly on Instagram and sometimes on Twitter at Lila Rapp. If you want to do one thing to send some love to the show this week, it would be great if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
We love reading them and they really help people find the show. I mentioned this last week, but FT Weekend is hosting its first U.S. edition of the FT Weekend Festival in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center on May 7th. You can meet all my colleagues. I'll be there. Alec is interviewing Leia E.P. on stage. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie will be there. Elizabeth Strout will be there. And there's a lot more to come. The details are in the show notes and there's a discount code. Also in the show notes is a link to some great deals on a trial or a subscription to the FT so that you can see what's going on behind the paywall. They're at ft.com slash weekend podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer, Lulu Smith is our assistant producer, and Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com.